week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV and our magical medical tour. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host for this program. And with me is our wonderful, amazing co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman, whom is also a medical guide. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Frank Ochberg. Wait till you hear his stories. We can't wait. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Frank. Hello, Christina. Thank you so much for being with us today. Glenn, are you there? <laughs> I'm already mesmerized by the whole day. I'm, to I'm totally in awe of everything that's going on right now. Hello, Frank. How are you? Hello, Glenn. Pleasure to uh, be talking with you and Christina today. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Magical Medical Tour. Let's get right to it. Uh, we know that Frank is a psychiatrist. Frank, would you do me a favor? In about 30 seconds, would you cover your entire life history of all the hats you've worn. Could, could you do that? <laughs> 30 born, seconds, born in, Glenn. Bronx <laughs> High School of Science, got a scholarship to Harvard and studied Shakespeare, ended up at Johns Hopkins Medical School, uh, got really interested in community mental health for the early part of my career. I spent some of it with the federal government, some of it as a cabinet officer in the state of Michigan. Uh, dealing with all of the mental health issues. And then I really fell in love with the field of trauma, post-traumatic stress. I was fortunate to be on the several committees that defined that concept and, and to have worked with such an array of people who had been to hell and back. And I find that I really enjoy the work with people who have and people who are still conquering their encounters with evil, with catastrophe, and learning to be whole again. Beautiful. I think wow. that covered a lot of it. I know there's a lot more to cover, and we're going to try and uh, touch on most of that today. One of the things that I want to ask you before we get into all of the work that you do, you're a person that deals with people's minds. So I want to know from your point of view, what is mind and what is consciousness? Well, consciousness is what we know or should know. We are doing, feeling, thinking. It's not being asleep and it's not acting without full awareness. We didn't even have a concept of conscious and unconscious until Sigmund Freud gave it those words. But it's been with us for a long time. Most of us understand that. I, I think of the mind as something that's a little bit more than the brain. But even the brain is a wild and mysterious place. And then we're still getting a sense of how it works, and particularly how it works when we're not aware of the fact that it's working. Uh, but mind to me is everything that we think and we feel. Okay, I'm happy with that. Christina, any thoughts on that? Um, any thoughts on it? Well, 
What, what can I say? <laughs> What's your thought on mind? <laughs> it's like, uh, my mind? Mind? is it my mind that is going to speak now? <laughs> no, really. So, so what I'm hearing, uh, Frank, is, is do you mean that like, like your, when you say your mind is everything, does that encompass consciousness? Um, maybe, maybe it's not everything because what you have in your mind and what people get from your mind is, is not necessarily all of you. Uh, your mind may not be aware of or, or even directing uh, the, the shape of your mouth, uh, whether you're <laughs> smiling or frowning. <laughs> so much that you perceive. And, and my wife perceives a heck of a lot more than I intend to show. <laughs> She's continually telling me what's on my mind, and she may have a better idea than I do. Uh, it, there's more to who we are than we're aware of. Interesting. Thank you. Let's and, leave it at that. Organ of awareness. Mm. Oh, I like that. So we're going to talk about PTSD and your involvement with PTSD. We're going to try and get an understanding of what it is, and we're going to work our way through all of it. Are you one of the people that actually defined PTSD? Well, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. There was a committee called DSM-3, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. At, at that point, uh, I was acting in other capacities within the Psychiatric Association, within the federal government, and then in the state government. But I did join the task force and the committees uh, right afterward, and I had a role in helping to bring the National Institute of Mental Health uh, into policy conversations about the creation of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm, I, yes, I am considered one of the architects of the diagnosis, one of the people who helped revise the diagnosis. And it's an interesting story because while the concept existed back into ancient Greek times, and it's, uh, it's reported in the Peloponnesian Wars, it's been around for a long time, and not just for combat veterans, but for others who have encountered extreme events, usually deadly events. But we put it into almost legal language, and we acted like a congressional committee that decides what the law is all about. And we laid that out in 1980 for the first time. I, I, I've been part of that genesis. So what is, give us a definition of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, it starts with what is traumatic. And, and, and our committee wrestled with this. We knew we wanted the event that can cause a continuing and, and really consequential condition. We wanted it to be something that hit you suddenly, that involved life and death or rape uh, or captivity. It, it had to be beyond tragic events, like, like the sudden loss of a loved one. 
it had to include elements that are, are going to wake you up in the dead of night, that, that cause a, uh, a sudden cascade of adrenaline and of fear or anger. So, so the, the, I don't want to go through the technical definition right now, but let's start with the idea that there has to be a trauma and the trauma has to pass the threshold that we've defined of, uh, of danger, of arousal, of high consequence. And the second part is there are episodes afterward. And these episodes happen at least once a month. And they include having memories that you don't want to have or nightmares that are sometimes a reenactment of what happened but sometimes they're part of what you imagined and what you connect to life-altering events. I'll, I'll give you more on that later. Mm -hmm. uh, it can also include a flashback, which can be dangerous if you are armed and if you feel that you are being attacked the way your battalion was attacked in combat. So a flashback is like a hallucination to something that actually existed. And then in various ways, you can return to the scene because your heart races or you sweat uncontrollably or, or you feel an enormous feeling of dis-ease or of disgust and your mind or your body is taking you back, even though you may not realize that that's what's going on. That's the first part of the symptoms of this condition going back when you don't choose to go back. The mm. second parts, and I, I'm going to combine these parts, the second parts are avoiding things that might be reminders or avoiding people that you don't want to distress with your own condition or, or, or feeling that the whole world has, has gone sour or, or being numb, particularly numb, to positive human emotion. The veteran who tells me, hey, doc, I know I love my daughter. I just wish I could feel it the way I, I used to. So these are all various ways of being diminished or, or of turning negative or of being avoidant. And the final thing is your biological alarm system is on, even though there's no threat. And because it's on continuously, you can't concentrate, you can't sleep, you can't experience the kind of intimacy comfortably that you used to experience, your appetite is affected, uh, you jump, you, you can have a, a really strong startle response, and you might do things that are self-destructive or dangerous without being conscious of, of doing it. So in many ways, you're back on the, on the battlefield, or you're back in an encounter with evil. And your biology places you there. Does a person know themselves that they're having post-traumatic stress disorder, or is it usually a loved one or a family member or a friend that's saying, hey, you, you seem to have some problems. We need to get you some help. It's both. I mean, the question is, do you know that it's post-traumatic stress when you're having it? 
Now, in the beginning, few people knew. We just had the concept. And I remember working with a diminutive, uh, lovely woman in, in South Lansing, and, and she had been raped. And she had all of these symptoms. And I took out, then it was a green textbook, the diagnostic manual. And I turned to this page and I showed it to her. I'm getting a chill as I remember this. Mm. She says, oh, my God, that's me in that book. It's real. So, so learning about it was in a way comforting because she didn't know if she was losing her mind, if she was uh, on the path to some kind of dementia. She knew she was very different, and it helped a lot to literally have chapter and verse in front of her. It, it's misunderstood, and, and, and this is an opportunity that we have to set it straight and, and, and to do some teaching about it. I, I think the big misunderstandings are that you're in a condition that you should be ashamed of, or because you have it, you're not as human and humane as you used to be. You might, you might be dangerous. So we have these archetypes of the veteran who runs amok and can't be trusted. Or from the movie Patton, the, uh, the soldier who is ill-equipped to, uh, to be in a combat zone who's weak. So another thing I hope we'll explore is the need to change the name to post-traumatic stress injury, because injury confers honor, particularly for a veteran of a war. Mm. And disorder does not. We need to help uh, almost ennoble this condition, because the people with PTSD are carrying the history of trauma for the rest of us. And we need to know that trauma exists. You mentioned a few seconds ago about uh, some people are weaker than other people. Should we be having uh, screening programs? Because we see some people that go to war and come back and they're relatively fine. They have some bad memories, but they're not having this post-traumatic stress injury process that you're talking about. See, we're already changing the name of it for you here. Imagine the medical tour is going to do that. Uh, is there a way of screening people uh, to say, okay, this person maybe should not be on the battlefield or anything like that? And we always talk in Magical Medical Tour about prevention or things that could be done to prevent this from happening. Don't uh, have a war. I think so. And I, I had a Don't have a war. Excellent. <laughs> I love I that. The psychiatrist who is a one-star general, Steve Zanakis, about uh, several years ago, too many soldiers washing out uh, in, a, in a heightened suicide rate. And we were uh, allowing into the military some people who wouldn't have been allowed in under other conditions. The best screening tool I know is the one that had been used back uh, in in the beginnings of, um, uh, it wasn't the Job Corps, it was, uh, it, it was, it was one of the other, the Peace Corps, yes, in the Peace Corps. And what they did was they brought 
uh, potential volunteers together and had them discuss items with one another. And then the peer group decided who was well-equipped and who wasn't. So it was peer evaluation in group conversation. And that technique worked. I, I, I think if we're talking about who should serve in the military, uh, the screening devices are good enough as they are. There is medical screening and there's a certain amount of mental health inquiry. We just have to set the standards high enough. Now there's a lot of research on the resilient uh, combat soldier or Marine or uh, Naval officer. And to be in the special forces, you do have to pass very high tests, including physiological tests of resilience. And what we learn is these are people whose alarm responses go up very quickly, but also come down very quickly when there's no need for alarm. And they have uh, physiological stamina. They're, uh, they're at the high end of mental fitness as well as physical fitness, and they know how to be trained, trained extensively, and they know how to operate with reliance on one another. So teamwork is important also. I know you work with uh, a lot of the victims of and classmates of people in school shootings, and we're seeing more and more of them. now. Nowadays, people don't have to go to another country to be in a war. Wars are coming to a neighborhood near you. Uh, so I'm wondering, is there something that we can give to students around the country or everyone? You know, there are snipers out there. There are bombings. There are people that are being shot in, in mosques and churches and, and temples. Uh, there are shootings on the street, people at concerts. It, it seems like this is happening more and more. Is there anything that we can do now to set our minds in a way that if this does happen and we're involved in it, uh, we will be better off for it? Like taking a, an anti-malaria drug and going into a malaria region. Is there anything we can do for the future traumatic stress injuries? Well, oddly enough, today, before you and I we're speaking, Glenn, I was speaking with the former head of the Secret Service, Julia Pearson, and she is now working on policies to help the state of Florida improve its readiness, uh, make, make strategic choices about what to do to help students prepare and defend themselves and take appropriate evasive action. And, and some of the things that go through my mind, I'm gonna tell you what I think personally about this. I think the idea of arming civilians in schools is a terrible idea, but it does fit with a certain attitude about uh, America, its frontier history, the importance of possession and use of firearms, the extension of that. I think a lot of it is promulgated by the NRA and by people who adopt that philosophy. Um, and while I, as you know, have worked with the Secret Service, the FBI, with Scotland Yard, I have very high, and with the military, I have very high regard for those professionals who are screened and are able and are continually trained 
and whose job is to face those kinds of dangers, they're the ones who should be armed and protective. And the idea of arming others and have them go to a shooting range once in a while to to be equipped, uh, but their real job is to be a coach or a teacher. It's a it, it's a destruction of the educational enterprise, and it's helping to turn mm. schools into psychological battle zones. That's not the answer. So I, I do think just as we used to do atomic bomb drills and we all have fire drills, it's fine to drill, but we really don't want to turn particularly young children into, into kids who are frightened. Uh, I, I would say, let's, let's not go there. Let's be prudent. Let's, let's come up with policies that can work. Let's field test them. And it's not just a matter of being sure that we have safe schools with respect to a very unusual occurrence. A, uh, a usually young male armed with an automatic weapon who does spree killing at school. That's relatively unusual, highly publicized. Uh, Let's not let that pervert and detract from the educational agenda that we have. Mm -hmm. I love what you say about that because it's it's very sad uh, these days when I'm out there and I'm speaking to parents and they are choosing not to send their children to school because they are always concerned with what might happen. And living here in Los Angeles, there are even schools that have... Um, metal detectors, which is so sad, you know, <laughs> that, that our kids are growing up in this kind of a society. Um, but I agree with you, Frank, that it's not about arming the teachers and everything. It is about the, the whole other end of, of removing the sources that people can get hold of. Um, so, so, Frank, when you go into the schools um, to work, do you work with the children? Do you work with the teachers? Well, it's, it's been different in different settings. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I was the kickoff speaker of the FBI symposium on school shooting uh, a month and a half after Columbine. And in the audience were a half dozen people from Columbine High School. And they invited me uh, to come to Columbine on half a dozen or more occasions. It usually was for a long weekend. And, and I became a part of that community. And in that case, I, I was trying to figure out what kind of teachers had the confidence of the kids. How, since kids did have a sense of what was going on with Eric and, and Dylan, how that information could have made its way to people who could have taken effective action, preventive action. Uh, interestingly enough, there I, I discovered there was a Spanish teacher who. Half a dozen kids told me they would have spoken to had they known what Eric and Dylan were planning. And I, I spoke with him and he said, oh, uh, I didn't realize that. I like kids. Kids come and talk with me. And, and it seemed to me that one of the advances that we could have done based, based on that is to help school systems understand the informal structure of the school, who talks to whom, 
who on the faculty is liable to hear something and what they should do when they do hear something. So a, a number of us are, are trying to sort out uh, almost the, the sociology of the school system and how to make use of what's already there. Mm. Now, lots of other uh, innovations have, have occurred since. I, I wouldn't say that I'm one now who regularly goes to schools. I, I was invited to Parkland just this past month, but I, but I ended up sending a, uh, a mentee of mine who's a very talented psychiatrist at Michigan State. And we're going to meet this weekend to go over her experience being in the Parkland community. There's always a lot to learn, and, and I do think psychiatrists and others can be part of the debriefing afterward and to to try to continually assess what could have been detected early on and what preventive measures could have been in place. Nice. What are the therapies? You, talk, you yeah, just what, talked about uh, a talented psychiatrist, which is a fascinating concept to me. Uh, uh, a talented that, psychiatrist. That's psychiatrist, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of therapies are there out there? I'm sure that each each person that goes through a traumatic event may has their own personality and everything else, so they need that. But are there some basic therapies that people do? Yes, yes, there are. A class of them is called exposure therapy. And that means one way or another, after you've already accepted therapy and you trust the person that you're working with, you deliberately expose yourself to your own worst memories. And you do it with the therapist in a way that includes something other than just remembering. So what I do is I count out loud to 100. And while I'm counting, the person in the chair at the, um, across from me is gazing off, and he or she is just going through it as it happened without talking. And they, they've given themselves permission uh, and encouragement to go there. And by the time I'm counting in the 40s, 50s, 60s, they are at the heart of it. They're being raped or they're being tortured or they're next to a person who's been shot. is beating to death. They're, they're re-experiencing the terror and the horror. And as the counting goes on, they're pulling themselves together. They're reaching the point in their memory when at least they knew they were safe. And then there's a time to catch breath. And then they tell me what they just remembered. And I write it down as they are talking. I'm not saying anything more than showing that I'm gathering it. And then the next phase, I read what I've just written down. And, and I might comment as we're going. And that's pretty much it. And, and what has happened is they have gone through a trauma memory system. Their brain is in a different pattern. And, and mm. they've gone from trauma memory to autobiographical memory. They have replaced 
real events from one mental system into another. And that's, that's a fundamental job of post-traumatic therapy. Francine Shapiro invented a widely popular method that's called EMDR, eye movement desensitization mm -hmm. reprocessing. And she waves a finger back and forth as a person is going through these memories. And eventually they report that their subjective units of distress have diminished. And, and that's another way of re-experiencing in a controlled environment. There, there are other ways as well. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm an expert. Uh, go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to say, we have a lot we have a lot to talk about. We're at the end of our show. I know you've written a survival poem. Would you read that to us now? And uh, that way we can close the show with one of your poems. Sure. And thank you for the opportunity. This was done a long time ago uh, from the perspective of someone who has survived what we're talking about. I have been victimized. I was in a fight that was not a fair fight. I did not ask for the fight, I lost. There is no shame in losing such fights. I've reached the stage of survivor and I'm no longer a slave of victim status. I look back with sadness rather than hate. I look forward with hope rather than despair. I may never forget, but I need not constantly remember. I was a victim, I am a survivor. Beautiful. And on that note, thank you very much for sharing your expertise and with, wisdom with us, Dr. Frank Ockberg. And thank you, Christina. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Ockberg and Dr. Woolman. And thank you to all of you for joining us here today on YHTV. Um, if you would like to learn further about Dr. Frank Ockberg and his fascinating work, um, you can go to his sites, giftfromwithin.org giftfromwithin.org and traumajournalism.org. Uh, we will have these on the website and so that you can click straight through over to them. And of course, you can follow our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman, through his website, uh, glennwoolman.com, or through his Facebook, The Medical Guide. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And if you are listening to this podcast or if you are watching it through YouTube, you know, give us a like and share it with others that you know will benefit. And we would love to hear from you. If there are any topics that you would like us to cover, please feel free to give us a call. We would love to hear your comments and feedback. Uh, give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And of course, you can always connect with us through yogahub.com. Thank you so much.